0: Well, Kwame Christian, welcome to Resolutions. Great to have you.
1: It is great to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me.
0: I have to just start with who is Kwame Christian, because there's a lot to your story and to your work, and I think it would help us just to know who you are.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Larry, it depends on who you ask, but um, <laughs> I think a good place to start is I'm a family man, I'm married to my wife, um, Whitney Christian, We got married on graduation day from Ohio State, um, been together since, and we have two kids, seven and two, uh, Dominic and Kai. And um, so for me, I'm, I'm the CEO and founder of the American Negotiation Institute, and we host uh, negotiation and conflict resolution workshops that make difficult conversations easier. Um, also, the host of the number one negotiation podcast in the world, "Negotiate Anything." Uh, we're at seven days a week, just producing as much free content as possible. Wrote a couple of books. Write for Forbes as well, and just try. I'm I'm trying to blanket the internet with negotiation wisdom from other people. As you can see, man, I have other people on the show. They just make me look smart. <laughs>
0: You came from a, a an interesting background, at least to me. Um, I understand that you were one of, if not the only Caribbean, one of, if not the only people of color uh, when you were growing up. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, man, um, I, I felt like I was the only Caribbean per- person like on this side of the US <laughs> when I grew up. Uh, we had a joke in our family. There are there only four black people in Tiffin, me, my mom, my dad, my brother. <laughs> You know, single-handedly conquering diversity. Um, But, you know, it was overall great upbringing. Still have a lot of good friends there. And I think that really positioned me well now um, when it comes to some of the recent work I've been doing. because. My my foundation is negotiation and conflict resolution, but when there was that time of social unrest, I focused my second book on how to have difficult conversations about race, and that background gave me a really great insight on how we could bridge the gap between um, between different groups. And so when I when I grew up, there were good times and bad. And I remember one time when I was on the on the playground, there was an incident where. Um, I was, I was in first grade and I would try to go up to different people at recess to get people to play with me. And they all said, no, the whole (laughs) recess, just looking for somebody to, to play with me. And so I tried to keep it together as much as possible. Uh, but the, as soon as I got in and I saw the teacher, I just busted up crying and she said, well, what's wrong? I said, well, nobody would play with me. And so that was an experience that turned me into a people pleaser. So for me, it was hard to stand up for myself. I was afraid to do it because I said, I worked too hard to get these friends. I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. And it wasn't until I got to law school and I discovered negotiation that I realized this is a skill, not a talent. I can learn. I can get better. I can improve. And so ever since then, it's been a journey of trying to spread that message to other people because our motto is we believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And so we just want to spread that message as far as we can.
0: I'm obviously very struck by the fact that it's so crystal clear in your mind what happened you know, decades earlier with the incident on the playground. I do want to ask you whether you felt as if you had difficult conversations about race when you were growing up. Was there a moment where you interacted either with a peer or an adult where you felt that it had something to do with race?
1: Oh, yeah, but I wouldn't even call it much of a conversation because I was I was always recalling from those incidents, from those interactions. I would just let it go. Somebody might say something offensive, I'd smile or laugh awkwardly and just let it pass. So I look back and there were a lot of conversations or incidents where I, I should have stepped up and say, said something, but I didn't have the skills or the confidence to do it. Um, so yeah, there were definitely those incidents. And the thing that's tough about this, Larry, is that when you think about, race, uh, people usually don't say, Hey, I'm doing this bad thing to you because you were black. (laughs) You know, it's usually not that clear. It's you, you have that, that, that question mark, was that about race? Was it not those type of things? And it can kind of freeze you in the moment. But for me, when it comes to creating connections and building trust and building relationships and and breaking through bias, for me, the, the skills of negotiation and conflict resolution have been almost magical to overcome those types of things, because there's a formula that we can utilize to to get in touch, overcome these biases and whatnot. So now even when those those kind of borderline situations happen, um, I have a lot of confidence in the skills that that we have in the alternative dispute resolution community, where I can say, okay, regardless of whatever this is, if it's race or somebody just forgot to have breakfast this morning and they're a little bit attitudinal, um, whatever it is, I feel like I have the skills to break through.
0: I just want to ask you also whether, either as a child or as an adult, you detected differentiation in how you were treated with a Caribbean background as compared to a person that would have come from, you know, originally the United States. I mean, I'm not saying you didn't, but I mean, you know, an African-American versus a Caribbean-American, a person with an accent, as you've talked about having when you were younger You know, was there a was there a nationalist kind of piece to this alongside any sort of potentially racist
1: piece? One hundred percent in a way that I think most people wouldn't anticipate. And so I when you think about biases, different people have different biases. I mean, biases are ubiquitous. Everybody has biases about different things, you know, and that's no matter who you are. And what I started to recognize is that there is a different bias against African-Americans. Than there is against people who are immigrants. So for me, as a Caribbean immigrant, what, what do people know about the Caribbean? Everybody's chill, everybody's happy, the water's great, you know. So they, that's not that's not too bad. And then we look at the, the statistics of, um, of uh, like how well immigrants from the Caribbean do in the United States. We typically do pretty well. And so there wasn't there was obviously a racial component, but culturally, when they heard me, they wouldn't. Think of me as an African American which gave me a bit of a benefit which sounds strange right but I, I recognized that there was a discrepancy between the way that I was treated and some African Americans were and it didn't become really that clear to me until I got to college because like I said there were there was not very much diversity and when I did see uh, people of color like black people it was usually my relatives who were all, also Caribbean Americans so what was interesting is that me and my white friends, when we went to these, uh, went to college, for a lot of us, it was our first uh, opportunity to interact consistently with African-Americans, for me too. And so I had to learn that culture. I was actually more familiar with white culture. I had Caribbean culture. I understood white culture very well growing up in rural Ohio. And I had to learn African-American culture, which is something that Whitney loves to hold over my head uh, because I, uh, Larry, is somebody who loves conversations, I, I like to communicate and everything like that. But if I don't know something, I can play like I do really well. And so, <laughs> and so there were these times where it was me hanging out with uh, all of my African-American friends and um, they would make up a they would t- say a joke that referenced something deep in the black community or like a, a movie that every black person has seen. And I would laugh a along and say, yeah, yeah. And when he's like, everybody, stop, stop. Kwame doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. <laughs> So yeah, I had a uh, curve there too.
0: The beauty of marriage, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I guess I want to. I, I guess I want to ask you a little bit about the seeds of an interest in negotiation because you you referenced the the class in uh, yeah. law school. I think you said, but I, before we even touch upon that, I, I guess I wonder to what extent you saw yourself maybe negotiating with yourself to become. The accepted part of the community that you had wanted to be and and hated not being. Uh, were you yeah. were you negotiating either with yourself or with others in that way?
1: Well, I think the um, growing up, let's say pre college, I was I was having these negotiations and just losing um, because I would recognize there was a there was that dissonance from doing or saying things that I didn't necessarily agree with. And um, and I want to be, be clear, it's not like, oh, hey, do this like dangerous drug or something like that. It wasn't anything nefarious. It's just these little um, concessions of authenticity that added up over time that I, that I carried silently for a very long time. And I just thought it was something that I had to do because I didn't want to risk the friendships. And it wasn't until I got to um, college and I had a mentor and I had big dreams I wanted to have an impact on the world. And he made it clear, he said, there's a difference between being liked and being respected. And you're avoiding all these tough conversations, but you're not going to have the impact that you want to have until you start having these conversations. And so it wasn't until I developed the willingness to lose. I think that's an interesting thing, because it was the the fear of taking risks that held me back. And now I said, okay, I know what I need to do. And I know there's going to be, there are gonna be some consequences. Not everybody's gonna like this new assertive Kwame. And I'm okay with that now. And what's interesting is that my relationships got better (laughs) when I started to stand up for myself. And um, I got a lot more respect and people still liked me. And so it was a really eye-opening realization. And even then in college, I didn't have the skill set to go along with it, but the mentality shifted and and that's where it has to start. Do you
0: remember any episode from the pivot where you felt yourself taking that more significant risk, and either it paid off or it didn't, but in either case, you you gained something from it. You felt more yeah, authentically absolutely.
1: yourself. Definitely. There's one conversation with one of my best friends to this day. Um, and I remember when my parents bought me my car for college, um, or the same car from, from high school, I believe. And they said, All right, Kwame, it's your car, paid off. It's it's yours, but just one rule, anytime you or anybody else is in the car, you have to wear a seatbelt. That's it your car, do what you want, but everybody has to wear a seatbelt. So I remember one time we, we, we maxed out the seating. I would never have more than five people, <laughs> but we, it was all five seats were taken. And it was uncomfortable for my, my friends in the back seat to put on their seatbelts. And so I said, listen, I'm not, this is the rule, put on your seatbelt and they wouldn't move. They, and then I said, I'm literally not starting this car. It went on for like 20 minutes, Larry. 20 minutes eventually everybody put off like put on their seat belts and things like that and they're like oh kwame you're being a stick in the mud those type of things and i was talking to to my best friend who was kind of like the ringleader of the rebellion in the car and i said why is it that even though you are my best friend it seems like you're the one who respects me the least and then i just left it there and i don't even i literally don't even remember the rest of the conversation don't remember it but i remember the impact it changed everything you know the conversation went well and you know, we're still good friends to this day. But I remember the fear I carried before saying that. And it, it changed everything. Like that conversation for me was pivotal, because it was the first time with intentionality, I said, Okay, I feel this fear, I'm going to do it anyway. And it was mind blowing, because, wow, this worked. And so that's what that's what changed everything.
0: Maybe it's because you have a microphone in front of you, but that feels like a mic drop comment to uh, <laughs> to your friend uh, in that moment. Certainly took courage. Um, tell me about both the decision to go to law school and then the decision to take the course that you reference as, as such an important pivot point. How did that all come about?
1: Larry, I, I fancy myself an intellectual, dare I say a strategist, and I will uh, disappoint you with my response. So (laughs) my, my undergrad degree was in psychology and I had a minor in Spanish. I wanted to be a therapist for a long time. And then I realized that if I were to work with people one-on-one, I could have a lot of impact with them, but it would limit my impact because it's, it's not scalable. It's just limited. So I said, well, what could I do to have the most impact? Oh, I could become a politician. Don't worry. Not going to happen. (laughs) okay (laughs) but that was my thinking at the time so i added a a second minor um foundations of law and started to go towards law school so i got my law degree at the same time with my public policy degree because i thought that was the the degree combination that would get the most respect if i matriculate into politics and so when i was in my second year and i actually had a chance to choose um i had a spring break course That uh, sorry, a fall break course that was like one week long, but about eight hours every day, super intense. And so the only reason I took that negotiation course was because it fit in my schedule and I wanted those credits, literally the only way reason I did it. And I don't even think I had a full understanding of what negotiation was like I understood what the word meant, but it wasn't really in my consciousness at all. And that's when I realized it's a skill, not a talent. I could learn. I could use this just not just in the the business world and the legal world, but in my personal life. It was really empowering. So I became really obsessed with it, just going over time, learning as much as I could just for that, just for myself, even beyond the class. And so we had these negotiation courses, these negotiation competitions at Ohio State, and at the time, I didn't even know that we were the, the number two or number one ranked ADR program in the country. No clue. Not why I went there. And so <laughs> I we participated in that, um, in that competition. And my partner and I, we won the competition at Ohio State. Um, that gave us the opportunity to represent the school at the American Bar Association competition in Ottawa, Ontario. And we won that too. And I was hooked, man, because I realized just by focusing and learning, I could... I could get this i could get it so that really changed everything because for me i said this is my thing and every time i negotiate and stand up for myself it's a vote in confidence for the man i want to be but even more than that i realized other people probably have this same problem and they're letting them, letting them they're letting it hold them back and so i wanted the same i wanted other people to have that revelation and feel empowered like i did so i didn't know how i was going to do it at that time and so that my the early stages of my career was figuring out a path toward that.
0: So, I mean, I guess the natural follow-up to what you just shared is the decision point around making a career out of this, because, of course, as human beings, we all negotiate on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis in one form or another, and you've chosen to make it your life's work. Tell me about that decision.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are a lot of elements of this, because... I, I knew, and when you think back to it, man, you see look, being a practicing lawyer wasn't really part of the plan. Um, it was a chess move the whole time to get to politics, but then I was there being sworn in um, at the bar by the Supreme Court of Ohio, asking myself what I want to be when I grow up. I'm like, what, what do I do here? So I, I worked at Ohio State, did some um, policy work at OSU, uh, focusing on civil rights and those type of things. And um, then I started my own practice. And I tell you, I, gotta, I have to give kudos to Whitney because when I left OSU to start my own practice, we had a, I think Kai was less than one year old and she's a doctor and um, she, you know, we had these visions of being a power couple and everything. And so Kwame starting his own firm and, uh, you know, scraping along was not part of that plan. <laughs> <laughs> so she um but she was patient she was patient she gave me time to to work through it and so I, my thought process at the time was all right well i'm young and nobody's going to respect me as a negotiation expert um i'm too young for this i need to i'll start my own practice i'll do this for about 10 years and um then by that time i'll be able to say oh yeah i have credibility as a negotiation expert but then i said you know what let's let me, let me incorporate this company. I'll do this on the side. I'll build it at the same time. Uh, and I'll start with the podcast. I know how to practice law. I know how to get clients. Okay, great. I'll do that. But we'll see what happens with this negotiation podcast. And it, it really started to become its own thing. Like that's the catalyst to, toward everything. I, I got some clients that I wasn't expecting. You know, you know those scammer emails you get? I, I got that email. I was like, this has got to be a scam. Zero percent chance this is legit. <laughs> that, that, this, that this person actually wants to pay me to be a negotiation consultant. But it worked out, man. And, and that was the beginning. But it was, you know, had its ups and downs, just like any entrepreneurial journey. But I think a big part of it was first of all, getting the blessing and encouragement from Whitney and her patience and support, Um, but also overcoming those self-limiting beliefs. Because when I incorporated A&I, I I was 27. I I, I joke with my friends, I'm like, yeah, I only recently came out as a millennial. I don't want people to know (laughs) <laughs> how old I am yet. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, here after, you know, seven, eight years uh, on the grind, I'm, I'm okay <laughs> with, with accepting that. But yeah, it was just the, the support from Whitney, overcoming those self-limiting beliefs and then growing incrementally by being as generous as I could with the best content that I had.
0: I guess I have to ask what the negotiation with Whitney might have uh, been like. Uh, I'm assuming she got something... In exchange for for support of your uh, bold and risky endeavor,
1: man, I think it's a it is a uh, <laughs> it, it's a testament to my negotiation skills and perhaps my smile because I had nothing to offer. I, I took her out to a nice restaurant. Uh, it was years before I could afford to do that again. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Hey, Wait, this is the idea. Are you on board?" Yes, <laughs> great. Um, I'll make some money in a few years. Just give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I I came up with this saying Larry. I said um the the difference between crazy and genius is success. And I was mm. crazy for a long time, but once things started to to turn around, it's like oh, okay, now now it's uh, like the promise has become realized, but the the first few years that was that was rough.
0: I guess the first thing that makes me curious about what you've built is what you see as the main differentiator between the other negotiators in the world and Kwame Christian or and A&I, and what is it that you think that you are offering either as a negotiator, as a consultant, or as a, a trainer of negotiation that breaks the mold from the way we've historically thought about negotiation?
1: I've thought about this for a while, and I think it's a couple of things. Um, This, Here's the thing about negotiation experts. There are very few bad negotiation experts. When you think about it just as a skill, I mean, okay, you practice it, you get better at it, then you study it, you can improve. Um, And if you hire a negotiation expert to do work for you, they'll be able to competently do that work. What changed for me was feedback from friends and the TED talk that I did in 2017. So people would, my friends would say, hey, Kwame, I'm listening to the podcast. The content is really good. It's it's sound, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound like you. It doesn't sound like who i the, the Kwame that I know that's relaxed and laid back and everything like that. It sounds like an audiobook, a boring audiobook. And um, so I, I took that to heart. I, I loosened up on the podcast. That led to more success. Um, then when I was doing the, the TED talk, Um, I was selected to do the TED talk and I, in my first iterations, they said, well, Kwame, this looks like, this sounds like a lecture or a workshop. I was like, exactly. That's what I'm going for. Cause I want to sound smart. And they're like, no, that doesn't work here. People don't want (laughs) a lecture. They want to be motivated and you have to, you're, you're sounding like a lawyer. And I realized that I was, because of the insecurity I had about my age, I was trying to sound smart. Um, and I wasn't opening myself up and being myself. And so really, I think one of the differentiators is authenticity. And this is not to say that other experts in the field are not authentic. That's not it at all. But I think it's a willingness to show behind the veil, not just the successes, but also the failures, seeing my family, seeing the struggles, seeing the, 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 the journey, the building and everything like that, and being super vulnerable. And I didn't want to do it. It was friends and employees who encouraged me. They're like, I know the real Kwame. The real Kwame isn't showing up on LinkedIn. It's not, he's not showing up in, in these public spaces. And I was very annoyed with the fact that they were right. Larry, they were right. Because I said, all right, cool. Well, let's just, let's do this as an experiment. I'm going to give a little sample size. I'm going to be authentically Kwame. You like it, you like it, you like it. The world's going to be like, it. it's weird to have a lawyer and a negotiation expert be this open, but I'll, show, I'll do this to prove you wrong. And then I started posting about family and and creating a nexus between the negotiation skills, everyday life and those type of things. And people loved it, man. And so I think that's really what it is. And that blended with just the, the strategy that's based on generosity. I think that blend is really great because I'm open, I'm vulnerable, and I'm posting podcast episodes every day, posting on LinkedIn every day and posting articles uh, probably once a week on Forbes and everything like that. And so people can get to know me and that creates a lot more trust.
0: By way of asking you about this core concept of uh, compassionate curiosity, I really would love to know uh, of a situation in your practice that you think planted the seed for you to flesh this out as a concept, a moment when perhaps you were thinking of approaching something one way and then, you know, a a switch flipped and you decided to come at it from this other angle and that kind of birthed the concept or something else that could have been the root
1: of it. Yeah. So I created the term for the TED Talk and I was thinking the whole time, what is, how would I describe my style of negotiation? Um, because I was, I was trained at OSU, um, great program and everything like that, but I have that psychology base. So a lot of it is based on what I've learned from my degree, but I'm a, I am am a glutton for information. Just read as much as, as I possibly can and then learning a lot through the podcast too. So it's a really hybrid approach. We have the negotiation strategies and tactics that we all understand, but it, there's a blend of other things. And so I started to look back at my difficult conversations and the thinking about the ones that went well and the ones that didn't go so well. And the beautiful thing about being a mediator is that I was able to have hundreds of opportunities to practice these skills over and over and over again. And um, I said, okay, cool. So what I do is I first, I, like people might be, they start off too hot. So I have to cool them down. We have to deal with that emotional side. I can't just get straight to the structure and everything like that. I have to earn that, but I need to make sure that I'm asked, I'm getting information and asking questions, but I don't want to trigger them while I'm asking questions. It's not a cross-examination. So I need to ask questions, but the way I ask the questions is it's, it's super important. And once you get past that, you lower the emotional temperature in the room, you gather information, then it's just simple win-win negotiations. We think about, the, uh, the collaborative interest-based negotiation techniques, I mean, that's been perfected. We don't, I, don't, I don't need to rein, like, reinvent that. And so I'm like, it's a process, it's a sequence. And so that's where I, I, how I started to come up with it. So first we acknowledge and validate the emotions to lower the emotional temperature of the room. Then we get curious with compassion. We're asking open-ended questions with a compassionate tone so you can gather that information and they feel safe and vulnerable enough to give you that information. And then at the end of the day, now we can stack on these strategies and tactics, but we earn our way to that position. And I think a lot of times people try to negotiate and persuade too soon in the process, and then it leads to a lot more friction and resistance than, than is required.
0: Yeah, It sounds like something that I'm sure you've heard that I've shared with students around the ultimate need to feel heard, and that may be their feelings or their substantive comments or some combination of the yeah. the two. In something that I read of yours, you referenced an interaction where the person didn't seem to want to talk about their feelings and did want to get to the heart of the matter, I think, if I'm remembering it correctly. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm curious about where the principle of compassionate curiosity comes comes in when somebody for any number of reasons is not comfortable to go into the feelings that they're having
1: yeah and think about that the discomfort that they have when it comes to being vulnerable and going into the feelings is a feeling that and that's a feeling that they might be willing to accept right? And so in that situation, uh, I'd say, hey, Larry, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems like you don't feel comfortable with, with me asking these questions about your feelings. Am I off on that? And then you say, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling that. I just want to get to work, get focus on the stuff and then move on. And I said, hey, listen, that makes sense. And I want to respect that desire. So we can, we can move on. That's not a problem. So tell me more about what you're experiencing. And that's me acknowledging and validating the emotions. And then they feel validated like, oh, thank God, he's not going to like pry into my emotions. Good. And then they calm down. So it still works. And I, I think that's the beautiful thing about the, uh, the framework. It's flexible. You know, so it's not always one, two, three. There might, be not, there might not be an, an emotional issue. So I just move on, right? Um, but then as I'm problem solving with the other person, an emotional issue might come back up and I know what to do. I'll acknowledge and validate. But for the people who don't feel like talking about their feelings, and there are a lot of them, I acknowledge that too. And then I move on.
0: You and I, I think, are both cisgendered males uh, in the United States. And I guess I have to wonder what, if any, difference you find in the way that this works with people like us as compared to either um, people who identify as female, people who are are transgendered, people who, who are different. My perception is that we as men often are slower to feel the level of comfort that's needed to exhibit vulnerability and are more fixated on quote, getting something done unquote. I'm of course yeah. bringing a stereotype forward, but I'm just curious how this is uh, worked out in practice for you.
1: Yeah, no, it's, the, it's a really, really great question. And you're right. What I found is that using this framework works well with women because they're more open to opening themselves up and having conversations about their feelings. They've had the benefit of not having societal stigma attached with emotional expression. But men, on the other hand, we haven't had that, that luxury, right? That um, dare I say luxury in a conversation about gender equity, you know, so take that as it is. <laughs> but the reality is that we are less comfortable in general um, when it comes to um, embracing that emotional side. So when it comes to men, sometimes they're, they're like the scenario that you described, hey, I don't want to jump into the feelings. They clearly have the feelings, but they don't want to jump into it. Um, and but oftentimes it's about recognizing that there are certain feelings that men are more willing to accept and express than others. So a man that's angry might not be as socially penalized as a man who is sad. Right. Anger seems like a stronger emotion to make it clear to the audience. I'm not advocating for these, these stereotypes. I'm just making it clear. Um, and a lot of times, too, it leads to shallow levels of emotional Um, expression and introspection too. Because for instance, anger is a secondary emotion, not a primary emotion. Usually we feel something else that leads to anger. So you might be sad and you express it with anger. You might be disappointed or hurt and you express it with anger. And so I think especially with men, when they're expressing anger, we have to go a little bit deeper. So, hey, Larry, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you're really frustrated with this situation. Yeah, I'm frustrated. It's really pissing me off, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm going to reflect back the same language. Hey, listen, I can understand why you're pissed off given everything that you have. And you said this happened, this happened, and this happened. I can get why that pissed you off. What else about it is pissing you off, right? Well, yeah, this was my friend. And they, they stabbed me in the back. And that hurts. That doesn't feel right. Okay, now we're getting to the root of it. And I think we, we have to become more comfortable with ourselves exploring the emotionality of others but i think the acceptance of ourselves and our own emotional states is the key to being able to open yourself up and encourage other people to open up and share their emotional state too and i think that's one of the things that makes it really challenging because in order to do this effectively you have to be emotionally available as well and um it doesn't create a a a dynamic of mutuality if you're just trying to get somebody else to open up and be vulnerable but you're unwilling to do it yourself
0: there's a question i'm going to ask you related to what you just said but parenthetically i think it was because i went into radio and, and i never really swore much before that that i just sort of swore off swearing because if i swore i might lose my job and so as i'm listening to you say you know i'm going to use their exact language there are definitely some times where that's just not going to be possible for me <laughs> yes. to use the party's language uh I can use abbreviations, perhaps, you know, MF or something, but, true. but, uh, um, true. I, but I, I,
1: to that point though, I, it's important because yeah. I, what I tell people is my, my simple rule is I never curse first in a negotiation or mediation. I'll let somebody else lead the dance. there, are reflect it back. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, engage in racial epithets or anything like that, you know, their limits. Um, but yeah, I let them open the door. Um <laughs> That's a really good point, though, because I was (laughs) uncomfortable with it for a long time. But I actually remember I I realized that matching that emotionality was actually really important for breaking through in a lot of these. Like they're not expecting a mediator to go back with them at that same level. And it helped them to feel a lot more comfortable with me. And um, I think one of the best pieces of feedback that I got from my supervisor was she said, I don't Know how you do it, but I've never heard somebody get people to laugh that much in mediations and it it worked because a lot of times they go in really hot, but then when you create that connection, they start to loosen up a lot more.
0: I wonder if you can illustrate what it looks like when you as the neutral or as the negotiator are emotionally available that's a it's an interesting phrase, and I guess i'm i mean I hear what you're saying about mirroring what the parties are saying. But what it sounds like you're saying is even going a step further and yourself being somewhat vulnerable. And I guess I'm curious what that looks like, an example of that.
1: Yeah, it, it looks different if I'm a mediator versus a negotiator, because I still have to to be that neutral. And even though I prefer to do um, shuttle diplomacy, so the other party isn't here, I never want to give the impression of the, uh, to the side like, hey, I'm on your team. That's not... <laughs> I can't do that. Right. But I would say, Hey, listen, this is let's say it's a landlord tenant type of issue. Okay, hey, listen, I, I have a wife, I have a kid. And at this point, I I know that if I were in your position, I would probably feel really upset. Like if somebody is displaying emotionality, but they're not like opening up, I'll say, I could not imagine how you feel in this situation because I care about my wife, I care about my kids. And if we were in this situation, I would certainly feel some type of way about it. And so I want you to know that it is okay for you to express yourself and you don't need to to edit yourself with me. And so that's what it would be like in in a mediation. In a negotiation, um, I remember one of the things that I did one time, man, this was a rough one. this was a rough one but um it it was one of those situations where uh you know you've probably had this as in in situations where it's like okay cool i'm having this conversation with somebody uh you know my client they don't give me all the information i think we're the good guys and now oh oh, in the middle of this negotiation i'm the bad guy now what in the world (laughs) can you talk to me beforehand let me know um and so i remember one time i I recognized that the other party was getting really disengaged. The lawyer was doing all the talking. The client was talking before, and then they just started to lean back. They had this scowl on their face, and they're crossing their arms. I'm like, that's a deviation from the baseline. Something's up. He, he checked out. And so let's say his name was Jim. I was like, hey, Jim, I'm going to throw something out here. You, you can you know shut me down if I'm way off. but Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you don't trust us at all right now. And then just left that pause and um he thought for a while and then he leaned forward and he's like yeah i don't trust you and this is why because you said y'all y'all said this and then you did that and things like that and i said listen based on the way that you're describing it and based on your perspective i can i can understand and so for me and what it take what it'll take to get this deal done is we're, we're going to need your trust and it sounds like we're going to need to earn that so what would it take for us to earn your trust You know, and again, what is that? It's compassionate curiosity. I acknowledge and validate that emotion, then transition into getting curious with compassion. But, you know, if you're, it's a situation where it's, I'm not, a lot of times we we engage in unintentional gaslighting. Nobody's perfect. We're going to make mistakes. And then in the conversation, we pretend like we never made a mistake. And so a lot of that vulnerability comes from saying, oh yeah, I messed up. I see that. And I see that you see that. So let's, let's address this. Let me apologize. And let's figure out what the way forward is. But a lot of times we don't get to that point unless we're willing to accept responsibility for our contribution to the situation too.
0: I'm just curious if the person, Jim, in that story was able to articulate what would enable you to earn his trust, what that amounted
1: to. He, it, he wasn't prepared to at that point. He wasn't prepared to, but it got him thinking. And for me, that's a win in itself. Because my goal is, I'm not just thinking about persuasion, where I say, you are currently thinking this, I want you to think this other thing. But I'm also thinking about almost, no, I don't, I, the way that I wanted to say it was emotional persuasion, but that sounds icky. Um, (laughs) Essentially what I want to do is I want to change the emotional state. So I, it's a pattern breaking maneuver. We're expecting that this is going to be a conflict where it becomes a game of tennis, where we may go point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint. Um, You're not expecting a lawyer to go, um, I make a point and he is vulnerable and empathetic, right? So I want him to recognize, hey, this is different. And then I want to, ask him this question, even though he might not have an answer right now, I want him to start thinking proactively because at the time he was thinking defensively. And so for me, that's a win in the conversation. I'm not manipulating anybody or anything like that. I'm just helping them to to let go of their current emotional state and start to transition into a more problem solving state. Because then we can have a conversation that's more in line with what we want to do as as problem solvers and and deal makers. We can start talking about numbers, we can start talking about law and what it would actually take to practically move us toward a finish line. But people can't get there if they're not in the right emotional state.
0: And now, a word from our partners.
1: Next Level Mediation Software is a mediator's best tool for advancing their online dispute resolution practice. It takes into account the psychological attitudes of the disputing parties and helps mediators find the key priorities to negotiate. Based on decision science and an easy-to-use interface, The Next Level Mediation platform can handle the most complex disputes. Register today at NextLevelMediation.com for your complimentary 30-day trial of the subscription service and enter the code A. B. A. Discount. 20 for a 20% discount.
0: We talked at the very beginning of this conversation about some of the interesting aspects of your background from a cultural standpoint, a racial standpoint, a geographic standpoint. I guess I'm curious what you might tell someone about different ways that, say, a person from the Caribbean would approach some of the same situations that we approach in our practices and i know i'm asking you to to (laughs) create a national stereotype or (laughs) bring one forward and i or a continental stereotype and i don't want to do that so maybe if i rephrase it um i guess i'm wondering how you would characterize some differences in the way Caribbean family or friends might approach conflict and conflict resolution as compared to folks you deal with that are native to the United States?
1: I love this question. I I think the biggest discrepancy would be in the way that we engage with each other as family members, because I I think people who listen to me talk, they read my books, they listen to the podcast, all these things, they would say man, when Kwame talks to his parents or his family, he seems a lot more argumentative, right? And um, I I mentioned in the book, I said, the Caribbean conversations can be a little bit spicy. But when I'm I'm talking to my wife, she's African-American, they like that, that level, like that approach would be frowned upon with her. And so I think for me, when it comes to the family dynamics, a lot of times we're more willing to to go in and, and have these conversations back and forth but because we have a lot of trust and faith in the relationship, it doesn't do damage because we could have this heated conversation back and forth. And other people looking from the outside, looking in must be like, they are pissed off. No, <laughs> this is just how we talk to each other. And then once we, we have our conversation, it's like nothing ever happened. But what's really interesting, though, is that when it comes to the business world and business negotiations, the the Caribbean uh, culture stops for me because I don't have any basis in Caribbean business culture. All my business experience is American-based, which is really interesting. And so I think when it comes to this conversation, it just shows cultural intelligence. It's about being able to pause and reflect and ask what authentic version of myself should I br- bring to the table, who is on the other side, and what influences might be in uh, having an impact on the way they're navigating the conversation and seeing me. And the more we're able to spend time with people who are different than us, the, the more we're gonna be able to flow in these diverse situations. I think that's what it comes down to. And so when we have the opportunity to just, even something as simple as going to a restaurant of some culture we've never been to, um, something as simple as if you are somebody who works out and lifts super heavy, go to a yoga studio. That's a different culture. And the more cultures we experience, the more seamlessly we can flow throughout these interactions.
0: The best place I think to end this conversation is on cereal.
1: <laughs> um,
0: I We start the day with it. It sounds like you and I both sometimes end the day with uh, some cereal. And um, it has come to my attention that it, you prefer a cereal that I never eat. So I would like for you to negotiate with me now Uh, And you're going up against a long history with, say, life cereal, particularly the 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 original, if you will, life cereal. You also have to compete with uh, maybe a cousin to Cinnamon Toast Crunch in uh, Raisin Bran Crunch. I don't know if this is a familiar, familiar uh, title to you, Um, but but convince me to uh, to come to your side uh, on Cinnamon Toast Crunch.
1: I just took took a peek at the uh the the family tree. And um, there is no connection between raisin Brand and cinnamon toast crunch. I just want to make that very clear. It's it's um, a it's a fraudulent, It's a it's a
0: artificial connection, marketing yeah, was, connection, but illusory,
1: not illusory, right? <laughs> so yeah, cinnamon toast crunch is my favorite cereal, and it, you know, <laughs> I remember some of my friends were saying, "Hey Kwame, biggest speech of your career on the TED stage. Are you sure within the first seven seconds you want to talk about loving cinnamon toast crunch?" I was like, "Hell yeah, this is authentic Kwame now." and so yeah love Cinnamon Toast Crunch and I think one of the hidden benefits of that is that um, a lot of people who bring me in to do trainings and and keynotes they saw the TED talk and that is a takeaway that I get from a lot of my keynotes just a ton of Cinnamon Toast Crunch which is great and um, the joke was Whitney always eats my Cinnamon Toast Crunch and you would you would love this Larry last week I, I went and I saw that Whitney likes Special K cereal with strawberries. Um, And then I looked and uh, Whitney was complaining. She said, Kai ate all my cereal. I was like, that's right. That's what you get. And then I looked in the closet and I saw my cinnamon toast grudge and he ate all of that too. (laughs) (laughs) So there's some genetic component here that is very, very twisted.
0: (laughs) Well... Adventures in all form of negotiation uh, yes. <laughs> with uh, with uh, with our guests today. Well, Kwame Christian, thank you for joining us. I've enjoyed having you.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It means a lot, and it, it's nice to be on the other side and get interviewed. Uh, this this is a lot easier. I like it.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to help support our podcast, please share it with others, subscribe, or leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with all the latest info on dispute resolution, follow the ABA section of dispute resolution on LinkedIn and Twitter. Or for more information on other ABA dispute resolution programs and publications, including upcoming events, visit www.americanbar.org forward slash dispute. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. The conversation contained within the podcast represents the opinions of the podcast guests and should not be construed to be those of either the American Bar Association or the Dispute Resolution section unless adopted pursuant to the bylaws of the association. Resolutions podcast is not intended as and cannot serve as a substitute for legal advice. Subscribers are encouraged to obtain advice from their own legal counsel.